It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 931- one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study we welcome you into the virtual bible study for thursday april 3rd 2014 thank you for joining us on the program tonight my name is jacob gwynn my father greg gwynn is here hello dad jacob great to be with you tonight good to be with you as well monty is behind the controls monty welcome back it's good to be here, Jacob. We're looking forward to hearing from you tonight. You've, uh, hey, I, well, I got to say, I'm so glad that Monty's here. Why? Because I, t- I, I mentioned to him the questions we we're going to be studying. He said he had answers to them all. Well, all right. I've got he, a good answer to every question. Shall we swap seats? No, it's okay. okay. Mine's quick and easy. Okay, all right. I told him he's like one of those persons I heard described as... He has all the answers. He's just waiting for the question. Well, then this could be a little bit interesting. Hey, but, Monty, we've let you off easy the last few times you've been here, so get ready to talk tonight. Okay. And uh, you can get ready to talk as well. It's toll-free, 877-381-4567. Email your questions to questions at collegeview.com. And if you're watching us live on the program tonight, the chat window is open at the bottom of your video uh, feed for your comments. Sign in there and join in with other listeners on the program tonight. Now, the program tonight is going to be very similar to one we had not too many weeks ago. How's that? Well, the topic, the, the, the title is very similar. Uh, well, you know, a few weeks ago we talked about some misconceptions about yes. Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then we, we talked about some false charges leveled against Jesus. Right. Two subsequent. Uh, and there's no, over, there's no overlap here, except this for maybe one. But, uh, this is a little different because. This is different. What we want to talk about tonight are some of the things that Jesus said and did that are maybe a little confusing to people. Difficult to understand. A little difficult to understand. We're going to talk about a parable or two or some of the statements that he made, some of the activities he was involved in. And we're not representing that people use these to charge him with sin. It's just that sometimes you scratch your head a little bit when you read. What did he mean by that? What was he doing there? Yeah. So, so we'll, let's just start in with one, Jacob, and we'll be able to illustrate what we have in mind. Now, the benefit of this is if you have something that you are a little confused about, you could send that in, and we could, could hopefully work it in tonight as well. Yeah, or you could send if – you, if you, when you get the idea that we're talking about here, what kind of things we're discussing, and you have some others that you want to add to the list, send them in. We may not get to them tonight, but potentially we could get to them in the future. Okay. I got eight, uh, and I've already thought of more, but we'll talk with. We'll be likely to get through these eight tonight. So, okay, let's just start in. For instance, and I ask uh, to our update list earlier today. I ask you uh, these questions. Remember, you can if you're not on our list, get on it by sending us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Remember, College View is spelled C-O-L-L-E-G-E-V-U-E. Uh, spelled odd at the end, V-U-E. Send us a question, uh, a, an email to questions at collegeview.com. We should set up questions at the virtualbiblestudy.com address, too. That would be Yeah, probably should. That would be easy. Uh, but anyway, if you're not on our email list, get on it by just sending us an email and say, add me to the list. Now, <clears throat> to our update list today, and I sent it out earlier today because I had, you a, did send out early. I had an appointment around noon, and so I got it out early today. 
How do you explain and what modern application might you make concerning these different things Jesus said and did? And the first one, we'll just go, I'm not going to read them all ahead of time. The first one is the parable of the unjust steward. Yeah. Uh, I think probably that most would agree that that is potentially the hardest of the parables that Jesus taught to understand uh, and, and try to make an application of. All right. Uh, let's just read it real quick. Luke 16, beginning verse 1. Uh, he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no longer, thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward with, said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou to my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto them, and to him, take thy bill and write four score. Mm-hmm. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fail, they may they may receive you into everlasting habitations. All right. Now that's the question. You know, uh, how do we explain that, and what kind of application might we make of that? All right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. If you'd like to comment on that tonight. Now, certainly Jesus isn't telling us to rip off our bosses, so what is he saying? Well, first of all, I think... We need to identify the characters, wouldn't we? Yeah, I, I think the first thing you've got to talk about with any parable is to understand that a parable is typically designed to emphasize one main point. Okay. And you can get yourself in trouble by trying to make make a spiritual point out of every detail that's in a parable. You can try to push the parable too far. There's... there's an essential analogy being taught in the parable, and then, as some might describe it, everything else is sort of embellishments to, okay. to make the story a story. Okay, right. So I really think that in the parable of the unjust steward, what Jesus was trying to press was that, well, first of all, he's contrasting the people of the world and, and the people of the spiritual kingdom. Okay. He says people... Uh, Um, of of their own generation. The sons of this world are for their generation wiser than the sons of light. In other words, a worldly person in pursuit of the things that are on his agenda is is more shrewd and diligent and aggressive to accomplish his purposes than many times spiritual people are. They say, no, this guy, he's openly and overtly a man of the world, and he he has his priorities, and he pursues them with vigor. Right. Here we are. We 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 claim that we're we're spiritually minded people, and that our ultimate goal is to serve God and to gain heaven and eternity. Yeah. And yet we don't pursue our goal with as much energy or enthusiasm as a man of the world pursues his. Right. It seems to me that Jesus is teaching that. Right. Okay. And in that last statement, uh, I think he was saying that we ought to use our present opportunities to provide for our future welfare. That's what the steward did. He had an opportunity to set himself up so that when he's kicked out of his job, other people would take care of him. Well, that was, in other words, he was shrewd and accomplished. He was, he was diligent to make sure that happened. And Jesus is saying, we ought to use our present opportunities to make sure that our future is well secured 
and, and of course, in spiritual ways. Is there, is there a bigger, is there another application here to the Jews and their uh, unfaithfulness to God? Possibly. I, you, know, you might see that in there, that, that they were the ones who had been entrusted. Right. But They were not stewards like God wanted. But I'm not sure, that, I'm not, personally, I don't see the parable that way because, you know, they did not use their stewardship well to, in other words, they were kicked out and, and left desolate. That's true. Uh, That's true. And and so you know this guy was commended because he had wisely pursued his right. purpose. Okay. All right. We got a couple of emailers along that line, and we might look to them. Yes. Um, uh, we've got Chris in the UK. He says uh, the steward's shrewdness was commended here, not his dishonesty. He knew he couldn't change his past, so looked to change his future. He wasn't classed as good as he was still called one of the children of the world. But the children of light are to learn from this. Just as the world will use opportunities to their best interest, we should use opportunities for his best interest. Let's not let any word fall to the ground when we could have witnessed for him or walked by when we would have, could have helped a fellow believer in distress, rushed by without committing the situation to prayer, choose to read the paper or watch the tube when we could have hit his word in our heart. Thank you, Chris. I think he's right. I agree with you, Chris. All right. And Randy in Sports Creek, Michigan says uh, what Jesus is teaching here is that the children of God are not as foresighted as the children of the devil often are. Christians should use the wealth that God has given them to serve others and uh, to serve others and uh, and preaching Jesus and for the cause of the Lord and making friends with those who have obeyed the good news and those who we have helped. We as Christians are to serve all of mankind and build our treasures in heaven and by doing so we will be received by God and our friends in the Lord's body, our brethren. We are where our treasure is; there will our heart be also. Jesus said uh, this in Luke chapter ten, uh, verse uh, Luke sixteen, verse ten. He that is faithful in much is he that is faithful in which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. All right. So, as I said, I think that that parable is potentially one of the hardest to understand most of the parables are just i mean just fall down easy yeah i mean they're they're not they're not difficult to to uh, digest at all and that and that's by design yeah jesus was the master teacher and he designed his parables in that way to make them very understandable and easy to connect to that one's a little more challenging but i think that that's the right way to take it okay all right shall we go on the next one i think is fairly simple all right we've got another case might take a little bit more explanation uh i've heard this called before i didn't come up with this moniker but i heard i've heard this called before the case of the unidentified exorcist yeah let's look in mark 9 in mark chapter 9 verse 38 uh john said to jesus master we saw one casting out devils in thy name and he followed not us and we forbade him because he followed not us But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me, for he that is not against us is on our part. All right, so he was casting out demons. Does that make him an exorcist? And we don't know his name, so that would make him unidentified. I get it now. He's an unidentified exorcist. Yeah, I had some notes on this. But I'm glad he wasn't an unidentified flying exorcist, uh, Monty. That would be a little bit, yeah. That would have been unique. That would have been unique. Uh, any, any thoughts on that one, Monty? We didn't get you on the first yeah, one. Yeah, we need to hit you on that one, Monty. What about that one? Well, at this time, there weren't denominations and things like that going on mm-hmm. like there are today. Uh, people that pretend to be serving Jesus who are 
I believe are confused and not following the pattern that we see in the New Testament. So what Jesus was trying to say, this guy's doing a good work. Uh, obviously, it seems to me, obviously, he was approved or he wouldn't have been able to accomplish right. that exorcism. I agree. So, therefore, since he was able to do it and he was doing it in the name of Jesus, he wasn't being against Jesus. He wasn't trying to tear Jesus down, but he was actually trying to build up. So, therefore, he was approved in his work. And they say when they're doing a good work, a uh, genuinely good work that's approved by God, don't hinder them. Right. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I had some notes on this uh, from a long time ago I dug out today. Um, some people like to misuse this passage. And, and I, I sort give of you, the uh, we can all get along. Yeah, you know, man, yeah sort of. Here, here's a quote from one of them. This man was not following Christ with Peter, James, and John and the other apostles. He was working independent of Christ's group, yet the Lord said, do not forbid him. Hence, even though someone may not be with us in the Lord's church, even if they happen to be in a denominational body or teaching some things that are wrong, so long as they are not against us, so long as they ascribe the name of Christ to their work, we should not forbid or criticize them. Mm. That's what one guy wrote and used this text to justify that. Yeah. All right. So I think this is important to get this right. Yes. Because, you know, that guy is saying basically anything goes. Just as long as they call the name of Christ over it, we should not criticize it. And, right. and it, it ought to be okay. Right. Uh, well, <clears throat> first of all, the careful student's going to notice what Jesus said about the man. Okay. He said he is not. He did not call him a false teacher. Now Jesus was Jesus was quick to condemn false teachers. Sure. I mean, and, and really uh, very explicit in the words that he would use. For instance, in a passage like Matthew chapter seven verse fifteen, "Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves." Yeah. <laughs> so Jesus was Jesus was not a man to condemn. Uh, was not a man to commend. False teachers. He condemned them. He condemned them openly. He did not condemn this guy. If this yeah. guy was a false teacher, if he was teaching something different than Jesus and, and his disciples were teaching, Jesus would have pointed out he did not. Well, even in verse 39, he says, No one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. So he was obviously uh, speaking the right things about Jesus. Yeah. Now, um, what was what was the problem? John was the br- one who brought this to Jesus and uh, his objection was simply, he doesn't follow with us. He followeth not us. Uh, he even John didn't accuse this guy of teaching false things. He just, he's not in our group. Yeah. Uh, the New American Standard Version says he does not follow along with us. Uh, one paraphrased version says he isn't in our group. And so basically the only concern John had was this guy is not in our immediate working company. Mm -hmm. And so we told him to stop doing that. Now, that's the only objection that's voiced about this guy at all. You know, the fact of the matter is we know that there were other faithful disciples of the Lord besides the 12 apostles. Right. Multitudes. Yeah. Jesus sent out 70 to spread the gospel of the kingdom, you know, in what we call the limited commission. Yeah. Um, And so, you know... um, there's no, there is no accusation in the text which suggests that this guy was teaching something different than them, doing something different than them. The only thing that's mentioned is that he was not in their traveling company. Yes. And so uh, Jesus said, let him alone. You know, he that's not against us is for us. Or yep. he that's not against us is on our part. Well, and in the context, we look a little bit earlier in verse 33, they were they were just having the discussion about who would be the greatest. So it seems that they want to be a little bit exclusive or preeminent here yeah. in, their, yeah. in their attitude. 
I think that's right. And and you know, the fact of the matter is, it appears that Jesus acknowledges that the guy was doing miracles. Right. Well, how can a false teacher or someone you know who, yes. who is alienated from God be able to work miracles? Right. So uh, in, in all of that, I, I think that. Uh, this cannot be rightly used to say we ought to just look the other way. As long as people are are uh, saying the name of Jesus over their activities, that makes it okay. I, I think that's a wrong conclusion. You know, we're taught throughout the New Testament that miracles were given to confirm the message that was being preached. Over and over we see that taught. So the fact that this guy was able, as stated by Jesus, to do this miracle, whatever it was he was teaching along with this must have been the truth. In Luke 11, uh, you know, they were they claimed that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, and he says you can't do that. If Satan uh, in verse uh, verse 17, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, a house divided against a uh, house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So Jesus, Jesus was saying that those who are not doing the Lord's work couldn't cast out demons. I got we got an email from Jeff in Alabama. Jeff, we hadn't heard from you in a while. Glad to have your participation in the virtual Bible study. He says we noticed that the man was actually was actually working miracles, but the disciples' complaint that was he was not walking in the same crowd, presence, or company with Jesus and the twelve. Luke nine forty nine says he followeth not with us. He was evidently a disciple of the Lord, but did not travel bodily with Christ and the twelve. Hence they forbade him. Nevertheless, this man was was casting out demons in the name of Christ, that is, by his authority. He did not merely attempt to do so, but actually cast out demons. Yes. Not like the seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19. Mm-hmm. He was a follower of Jesus, following the Lord's way, though he did not accompany Jesus physically and the twelve. As a result, John and the others should not have forbade him. The understanding of the apostles was imperfect at this time. They had to learn that others outside their immediate circle could also be following the same way as the apostles, yet not be in their midst. He gives several other scripture references. They should not have restrained this man or hindered him in any way because he was doing the work of the Lord. It was in the Lord's name, not in his own name. Just because the man was not associated with the twelve was not evidence that he was not authorized to cast out demons by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in essence, he is saying, do not prevent anyone from acting in my name or by my authority. If he can work a genuine miracle in my name, it is sufficient proof of his attachment to me. If the man had been an enemy of truth, the attempt to perform a miracle would have failed, and it would have been right to forbid him. However, according to John's own statement, he was he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and this showed he was a friend. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you, John 15, 14. Yes. The Lord, in verse 40, the Lord clinches his argument. There is no neutral ground in the contest between God and sin. A man is either for or against Christ, Matthew twelve thirty. The phrase is, pre, is present tense and says literally that he is not being against us he that is not being against us is on our part in other words he is not opposed to us in word or deed but is acting on the lord's behalf hence the context is not at all addressing those who believe teach and practice things that are contrary to the revealed will of god the multiple doctrines of various religious organizations not only teach different but often opposing doctrines uh unfortunately in the verbal name of christ only Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. And Aaron in Baton Rouge uh, also references the seven sons of Sceva. And he says uh, they uh, there were some exorcists who called the name of, the, of Jesus over the work, but it didn't work out so well for them. If you will recall, they uh, fled the house uh, naked and wounded. Uh, so that uh, it didn't work out for those who were not truly 
uh, Christ's disciples. Uh, and then Chris in the UK. Yeah, now he might differ with us a little on this, Jacob. He said the disciples were not the only ones who could do God's work. And then to apply that today, he says, you may well have the truth among you, but don't be so dogmatic to say that no one in this group can possibly be of Christ. Maybe they haven't got the strength to leave them yet. Maybe God is able to act in ways that are mysterious to you. He knows who are his, and those who aren't will be told to depart from him. That is his judgment call to do, not yours. I'd have to differ a little bit with that. I mean, uh, again, we're in agreement. You know, They don't have to be in our immediate physical company. Right, but but we cannot look the other way uh, if they are uh, not teaching the truth of God's word. So I, I'm not sure. I, maybe maybe reading a little more into Chris's comment there, but but we would. I just don't think we can use the passage to justify condoning false doctrine. No, we can't. Uh, we can't do that. And so, all right. Um, and then and then Randy in, in Michigan says we don't know who the man was, but he did do a miracle. Because Jesus said he did. If he did not have God's approval, he would not have been able to do the miracle. And then, and then he references Acts 19, verses 13 and following. Yep, seven sons of Sceva. Seven sons. Popular sons. answer tonight, but it's, I don't know. Monty, would you name, would you name your boy Sceva? Uh, that wouldn't be a first lit on my list. No, no I think would, that sounds like they may have gotten that name out of some kind of a medical encyclopedia. <laughs> uh, all right, we're going to take a break, and when we get well, back. What? When we get back. David and the showbread. Did Jesus condone situation ethics by referencing David and the showbread? All right. We'll get to that on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. Tonight on Channel 8 WSIN. It's TV like you've never seen it before. Starting at 8, it's TV's funniest new comedy, Fornication in the City, and Marie has been misbehaving again. Guess what? I just cheated on my husband. He doesn't even know about it. (laughs) And then at 8.30, it's the show that's setting the standard. You won't want to miss this week's I Love This World, where Bob makes a great announcement. Well, I think it's time you knew the truth. I'm gay. (laughs) And at 9 o'clock. It's the show that Television Magazine has called the number one drama for murder and violence. You won't want to miss this week's In Cold Blood to see who will be the next to be gunned down. It all starts tonight at 8 o'clock on Channel 8 WSIN. I'm Greg Gwynn reminding you that sin is a terrible thing and that those who are entertained by watching others sin fall under the condemnation of God that is mentioned in Romans 1.28. Be careful what you watch on television because in spite of what the devil wants you to think, sin is always sin and it's never funny. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Waiting is a trap. There will always be reasons to wait. Procrastination is the bad habit of putting off until the day after tomorrow what should have been done the day before yesterday. Putting off an easy thing makes it hard. Putting off a hard thing makes it impossible. I value the friend who for me finds time on his calendar, but I cherish the friend who for me does not consult his calendar. Laws control the lesser man. Right conduct controls the greater one. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Man, wish I'd said that. 
Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. And uh, we're glad that you're back on the program tonight. And uh, some good names in the chat room there. Good, glad to see Arthur on tonight. And Brad and down in Alabama is listening tonight. Brad, glad you're able to catch us live on the program. Brad listens to the podcast version a lot, but he's able to listen live tonight. Glad you're you're out there, Brad. All right. Glad to have everybody listening tonight and look forward to your participation. The chat room's been pretty quiet. Now you all can yeah, jump in I'm here. I'm glad people us- are signed in the chat room, but <coughs> you, can't, you didn't get much farther than that. But that's okay. All right. Real quick. David and the showbread. We're moving on to David and the showbread from Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how that the Sabbath days, on the Sabbath days, the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Mm-hmm. First of all, you know, I think today people say, well, that wasn't right for them to go in there and take, you know, just walk into the field and start pulling, yeah, pulling the, 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 the grain, you know, and eating it, you know. And that was actually allowed under the law of Moses. Okay. So I've even got a note here in my margin, Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five. Allowed that didn't and allow harvesting somebody else's field. You couldn't take you could this. Eat. You couldn't take a sickle to a standing yeah, grain, right. but you could do what they did. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that the Pharisees weren't criticizing them for that. Mm-hmm. What they were criticizing them for was doing it on the Sabbath day. You know, the idea of plucking some grain, rubbing it in your hands to get the chaff off, and eating it. They, they what they were work. they were talking about work on the Sabbath day. That yeah. was what their complaint was. It wasn't that they were taking the grain. It was the the supposed work that was done. Yes. Uh-huh couple of things to note that was their interpretation but it wasn't a fair interpretation of the law and i think jesus makes that point when he says the son of man is lord even the sabbath day jesus said that's not a sabbath violation and i'm telling you that as the one who made the sabbath law yeah you know i mean he, he's he's deity he's god he knows the law yeah and he's saying now you you all have a tradition suggest maybe that that's a violation but i'm telling you i wrote the law and that's not a violation. Right. So, I mean, that, that that's one thing, I think, to point out. All right. But what about his reference to David? But he David also says and, they, they would not have condemned the guiltless. So Jesus says they weren't guilty. Yeah, that, that's the Verse key. Seven. No, Two things that you, you might like to underline in your text. David did that which was not lawful. Verse 4. Jesus' disciples were guiltless. Mm-hmm. So David was guilty. His disciples were not guilty. And what... What the, I think the explanation of this text is not that Jesus was justifying situation ethics. What Jesus, you know, the, people make that argument and say, Jesus was pointing to David under extreme circumstances, although it wasn't typically right for him to do so, he was allowed to eat the showbread. And Jesus said here that was okay under the circumstances. Yeah. That's really not what Jesus said here. No. Uh, Jesus is, is pointing out their inconsistency mm-hmm. in criticizing his disciples who were guiltless while admiring and holding up the honor of the history of King David. And King he, David was the national hero of, of the Israelites, and yet he had done this wrong. And yet he was wrong. He sinned in eating the showbread, he did but they passed awful. over that. They didn't, they didn't object at all. Okay. But instead, they were 
they were criticizing these sinless or guiltless disciples of Jesus. Okay. Um, someone paraphrased it this way. You Pharisees revere David as a great king and Hebrew hero. David once broke the law of Moses by illegal consumption of sacred food, but you do not condemn him for that. By way of contrast, my disciples have violated only your silly traditions, yet you charge them with sin. How very inconsistent you are. I think that's a pretty good way to describe it. Um, J.W. McGarvey said this. Now, the real argument of Jesus is this. David, when hungry, ate showbread, which it was confessedly unlawful for him to eat, yet you justify him. My disciples pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath, an act which the law does not forbid, yet you condemn them. Yeah. Okay. And Brad in the chat room says, sometimes folks make the mistake of saying that Jesus broke the Sabbath on this occasion, and he could do so only be- or could do so because he is God. That's not correct, as you've always already pointed out. Jesus and his disciples were guiltless. Yeah, if Jesus could break the law or break the rules because he was God, then he couldn't be uh, our sacrifice and our Savior uh, if he was somehow above the law. Randy in Michigan says, Moses permitted those going through a grain field to pluck and eat the grain for food. He references Deuteronomy 23:25 that I mentioned earlier. Uh, let's see here. Uh, that's all he says on that. Chris in the U.K., uh, has a little bit different take. It's Jesus' point here was that the Sabbath law was for our benefit, not to be a burden. It is a day of for rest and joy, not fear and restriction. I don't know about that. You broke the Sabbath and you got you could be uh, put to death for it. it. It was the Sabbath rest was was for the benefit of the Jews. It uh, was that, that's for sure. It was to be a day of rest. But and it joy. was a, a day. But of there restriction. were restrictions, Absolutely. and there was some fear for not uh, yeah. not observing those restrictions. It was commands of God that God expected to be kept. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, uh, and he later quotes Hosea chapter six or six. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Show love to people, not get your clipboards out to see where on your list they've gone wrong. By all means, present them with God's word, not your tradition, to convict them of their wrong practice uh, or their wrong practice. But when you point them to the cross, where all offenses are dealt with justly, uh, he is uh, the judge, not you. Let him do the war, his work. Uh, I'm not sure of all the implications of what Chris has written there, but I would agree that part of the problem in that context was that these Pharisees had a long list of their own They had added rules. to. They the had added rules. to, and that yeah. was wrong. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. All right. I think we got that one covered. We're going to have to hurry, Jacob. We're, we're, we're not on. half done, and we're almost half out of time. We, in fact, we're up to our mid-break. Should we take it? Let's take it, and we'll catch our breath, and we'll go faster on the other side. Five to go in 30 minutes. Six minutes per well, five minutes per. We'll have to keep a watch on the clock. And we'll look forward to your comments. Uh, Brad asked a question. Uh, he says, what was Jesus talking about when he said that the priests profaned the Sabbath? We, we skipped over that. Uh, we didn't comment about that. But but the priests were obviously doing physical work on the Sabbath And I day. think Jesus is saying there are some exceptions uh, uh, to he, the Sabbath, the, 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 the general rule. Yeah, he's pointing out that, that the Sabbath law had a lot of intricacies. And one of them was it allowed the priests to do things that others couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Right. But I think all of that is in the context of Jesus saying, I know the Sabbath law. Yeah. And I wrote it. Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll take a break and get your thoughts on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The Virtual Bible Study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. Stock market investors have been nervously watching the daily news reports to see how their investments are doing. Even a slight increase or decrease in the points can sometimes mean a gain or loss of thousands of dollars, and so those with money invested are very interested to know the latest market trends. 
While stock market investments can be a helpful tool in building up financial wealth, the scriptures teach us that our most important investments ought to be in a different realm. Jesus said in Matthew 6, beginning verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. The reason for this emphasis on heavenly investments is obvious. Jesus said, quote, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We need to realize that having our investments laid up in heaven has advantages now as well as in eternity. Not only will we reap the reward of a heavenly home forever, but we will also benefit in this life. If our investments are in spiritual things, we will have a great ongoing interest in them. Just as a stock market investor watches the market closely, we will carefully watch how things are developing in our spiritual lives. There will be a tendency to do the things that will increase our, quote, heavenly stock. And so we will be, quote, on guard for everything that could threaten our eternal well-being. And if we would begin to struggle in our service as Christians, others will be able to call us back by reminding us of our investment. So, Christian, how are your spiritual investments? That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, my name is Kent Bumgardner. My family and I love to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. Please join us. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the Virtual Bible Study. Now, back to the program. Welcome you back to the program tonight. And we do remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. And if you're not signed up for the Sermon Podcast, sign up there. There's details on that. Look for Sign Up Resources to find the link that you can use in your podcast receiver to join uh, the sermon podcast for recent sermons that have been presented to the College U Church of Christ. Check that out on our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. All right, our next one. How do we explain a situation where Jesus, where it said Jesus couldn't do any miracles? He couldn't yeah. work a miracle. Yeah. Mark 6, beginning verse 1. He went, uh, he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples follow him. And when this, this is Mark 6, verse 2. When his, the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many hearing him were astonished, saying... From whence hath this man these uh, things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. So people are implying, I guess, that Jesus was limited in what he could do. It looks like it. You know, you know, uh, there is this flawed argument made by modern day f- miracle fakers, as I like to refer to them, fake healers rather than faith healers. Yes, yes. The argument they make is that before a person could receive a miracle, they had to have faith. Yes. And if you don't have faith, then God, God can't do a miracle for right. you. And they would use this text to try and prove that. Right. And I actually think it's it's a mistake to, that way. Um, first of all, the Bible is very clear that Jesus had unlimited miracle working power. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his miracles astonished both his disciples and astounded and dumbfounded his critics who couldn't, who couldn't argue against the power of the miracles yeah. that he was doing. Yeah. Now, there's plenty of clear examples along that line. Maybe if you're making notes in your margins for help here, um, in Mark 6, verse 5, where it says he could do no mighty work, you might like to write in the margin there the parallel account, Matthew 13, verse 58. Mark says... 
as we just read, Mark says he could do there no mighty work. Matthew says, and he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Same same thing. It says the same thing, but it gives you a different a little, little in, in English, anyway, it makes a little bit. There's an argument made about the Greek. Uh, the, the Greek phraseology there suggests... Uh, well, some uh, this guy he actually gives the Greek uh, uh, expression. He says, "A manner of speaking occasionally employed to connote the idea that one, for some reason, chooses not to do something, although technically yes. he has the ability to do it." Yeah. And and the same construction. This is kind of interesting. I thought this was interesting. The same construction is in Luke fourteen twenty. Mm-hmm. Remember when the men were bidden to the feast, mm-hmm. and one of them said in Luke fourteen twenty, "I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come." Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> well. He could have come. He yeah. just chose not to, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. And that's the same kind of construction that we have here. Yeah, and we use the same language with our kids uh, on the way home from Bible study on Wednesday night. They might say, can we stop and get an ice cream cone? No, we can't. We say, uh, we say, we, no, we can't because you weren't good in Bible class, something like that. Well, well we could. I mean, the, 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 the ice cream shop is open, and we've got the money in our pockets, but we can't for extenuating circumstances. I think that's a good example. Money. Well, I agree. That's I believe that's exactly what Jesus was saying there, or what they was said about him. It's not that he physically didn't have the ability to do it. Is that basically they weren't worthy of seeing them because of their lack of belief. That's what Randy in Swartz Creek, Michigan, says. He says the truth. The truth is they were offended by him and did not want him to do any mighty works. They rejected him. Yeah. Okay. And Chris in England says. Remember, he'd been there a year before and was rejected, even evicted from the synagogue after reading Isaiah. So he was being gracious and allowing them another opportunity to hear his word. Do not ignore that he lay his hands on a few sick people. He, he did do some miracles. I yeah. think that's a good point. Jesus has all power, but he did, but he does teach later, uh, if a place refuses to listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. Christ will not work in the hearts of those who will, whose will who will not believe. Christ will not work in the heart of those who will not believe. To continue to strive, you could well be casting your pearls before swine. Pray for them, but then move on to people who are open. And Tom says, if I if I do not wish to be saved, Jesus cannot save me. If I do not want to be healed, Jesus cannot heal me. Is this a flawed argument? No, Tom, I think it, I think that works. I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a good parallel, Tom. Yeah. I think you're right. And Stephen says, the ones who uh, were dead could not confess their faith, so whose faith raised them from the dead? And Stephen is going to get up on a soapbox that we'd like to get up on there about these miracle so-called miracle workers who claim that it's how the, much faith does a corpse have yeah jesus raised people from the dead did they have faith yeah. at the moment no obviously yeah. not. thank you Stephen. all right quickly we got to move on we got to make tracks here jacob and you're doing good you are uh, on, you what are on about now this one's pretty hard i think what about jesus instruction to eat his flesh and drink his blood all right now this is getting a little bit uh this is icy a little dicey. yeah yeah, yeah john six okay. We're in John 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Mm-hmm. Right? What are you going to do with that? Monty, you said you had all the answers. 
All right. Yeah, break something off on us here, Monty. My famous catch-all answer is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer. Huh? But I don't really believe that's what he's talking about here. I think there could possibly be some symbolism to the Lord's Supper that the people that had accepted Jesus and were obedient to him and, and put him on in baptism would be doing taking this these emblems that he referred to as his flesh, the unleavened bread, and the fruit of the vine being his blood. So if you've done that, you've taken Jesus into you, you've made him a part of you, and you're obedient to him, and so therefore you do have that eternal life that he was talking about. But if you don't align yourself with him that way, then you've you've missed the boat. I think you're right. I, I don't think it necessarily has connection to the Lord's Supper. I think our Catholic friends would like to maybe use this passage to to, to support their uh, doctrine of transubstantiation, where the where the bread and the, and the fruit of the vine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. I I think this is clearly a figurative expression. Aaron in, Baton not, yeah, go ahead. Aaron in Baton Rouge says, Many people apply Jesus' words in John 6 to the Lord's Supper, but I don't believe this is correct. Jesus tells us what we're, he's talking about from the very start. Verse 27, he says he's talking about food which endures to everlasting life. In verse 40, he says that he's talking about believing which leads to eternal life. In verse 45, he says he is talking about being taught, hearing, and learning. When the disciples have a hard time understanding. Jesus explains in verse 63 that he's talking about his own words. Yeah, that's the notes I had too. Uh, interesting in the in the grammar of this passage, the participles are present tense forms and could be literally rendered: "He who is eating and continues to eat my flesh, and he who is drinking and continues to drink my blood, has eternal life." Well, nobody's going to argue that the, that the people present at that instant we're cannibalizing jesus's body and drinking yep. his literal blood the language is clearly symbolic and and i i think as as aaron pointed out in verse 63 that he is talking about partaking in him you know uh, partaking in his teaching and participating with him in in what he does all right okay you know, what we eat becomes a part of us so he's talking about Taking his teachings into in. us to the point yeah. that that becomes a part of our life. Yeah. All right. Brad says, when I first read this passage, I thought he was talking about the Lord's Supper, but I heard a preacher once put it this way. Jesus was not talking about the Lord's Supper, but the Lord's Supper is talking about this. Mm. Well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, uh, that might be a way to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen says, nourishment comes from taking in Christ. I think that's the key right there. Right. And that's not that's not literal, you know consumption of his physical body but imbibing his teaching making it a part of you all right good good comments uh, from our listeners there appreciate that the excellent excellent randy in michigan says uh jesus is speaking figuratively here and i think peter gave the answer the right answer in in the in the later in the chapter in verses 67 through 69 that jesus said do you want to just uh, to all, do you also want to go away Simon peter answered him lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life yeah so I think that's right, Randy. I think okay. you're right. Uh, Chris in UK says, we are, in order to obtain eternal life, we receive Christ through faith, faith in the life lived, pictured by the bread, and the forgiveness of sin purchased at his death, pictured in the water of life shown before in the woman at the well story. Uh, he compared the words he spoke in verse 63 to that spirit and life. I think that's right. Just as we can't live without bread, we can't expect to live eternally without faith in him or the forgiveness he provided. And we can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All right. All right. Excellent comments. I think those work. All right. Uh, let's, let's take our last break, break Jacob. And, and you, we have, we're so far, we're on schedule. We just have to do this again in the next 15 minutes. We'll get through 
And we'll look for your help and your comments as well. Keep them coming in the chat room. And the toll-free line is wide open, 877-381-4567. We go to the top of the hour right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Mississippi reigns as the most religious U.S. state, with 61% of its residents classified as very religious, according to the results of a recent Gallup survey. Tennessee tied for fifth, with 54% rated as very religious. In contrast, only 22% of people in Vermont ranked as merely devout, and the Green Mountain State held on to its title as the least religious. Overall, about 41% of Americans indicated that they are very religious, meaning that religion is an important part of their daily lives and that they attend religious services every week or almost every week. 29% were classified as non-religious because they did not attend services and didn't cite religion as an important part of their daily life. That information is via LiveScience.com. The Word of God says in Jeremiah 2, verse 32, Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The virtual Bible study continues. Back on the program tonight, going to the top of the hour, talking about difficult things that Jesus did and said. Actually, it's not difficult things that he did, but difficult things to understand. Yeah, yeah, these are just some of the ones you got to just think a little bit harder right, about right. i mean so, so much of what jesus taught was just boom boom i mean who could miss it a, yeah. a, a few places will require a little more diligent investigation and consideration but they're all there this next one what some people i've known people i've personally known people got really wound up tight about this instruction to hate one's family yeah. that to be the lord's disciple you got to hate your family in luke chapter 14 verse 26 luke 14 Verse 26, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciples. Yeah. Uh, I knew a man who wouldn't obey the gospel because I, I can't hate my parents. And Jesus said, you got to hate your parents if you're going to be his disciples. And, and he wouldn't obey the gospel. Did you get him that. over that? I never did. Never could. Well, um, now, well, you know, if I'm going to take that and I'm going to stand on it and say I've got to hate my family. 
I've got some problems with other passages like First John chapter three verse fifteen. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. So, I uh, yeah, I'm gonna have some problems. Or uh, how about Ephesians uh, chapter five? Husbands love your wives. Wait a minute, I thought this said you had to hate your wife. One of the ones listed there was your uh, wife. Was your wife? You got to hate your wife. But then we're commanded to love. Uh, what do we got going on here? I think we can hand, uh, this is easy. This is the easiest one on the list, I think, probably. Okay. Well, uh, no, no, like, no, it's difficult. You said it was difficult. I'm gonna, uh, among the difficult ones we have listed, oh, this is the easiest, easiest one. I, I'm just going to let Chris's statement from UK answer it. He's got it. Uh, this is a statement of comparison, even hyperbole. Our love of them is deemed as hatred when compared to the love we have for God. Also note that the parallel passage in John, chapter 12, verse 25, is your life that you were to hate. And clearly you don't hate that or else the statement to love your neighbor as yourself would make no sense at all. Uh, if we did hate our life, we'd have to hate our neighbor, which is ridiculous. He says we ought to have a right view of our life, that the one we live for is what matters, that the God, uh, godly eternal life is incomparable, more important than this earthly temporal one and its relationships. Yeah. Well, yeah, our, our chat room has come through on this one as well. Randy, I believe, Henry, yes, is yeah. Randy? Uh-huh. Randy says uh, what Jesus is saying is to love them less than him. Matthew said in this this in Matthew 10, verse 37, He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Thank you, Randy, for that. That's excellent. And then Aaron says, I don't think the right answer here is to water down the word hate. But then just a few verses in verse 33, Jesus says, that one who comes to him must forsake all that he has. When we hate something, we put it from us, and we rid ourselves of its influence. The same is true of family. In circumstances where Jesus' teaching would cause enmity between family members, Luke uh, 12, verse 53, we must be willing to forsake even family in the same way that we distance ourselves from things that we hate. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59 through 62, some attempted to follow Jesus, but put some family things first, and Jesus said they were not ready. They had other allegiances that they weren't ready to cut off, but we must be prepared to treat anything as though it is hated. Okay, but I I would think, and I think, Aaron, you must agree, too, that that's still using the word hate in something less than a a literal sense. Right. Uh, It is a statement of comparison. Yes. Uh, you know, and it, it has to be so because we're commanded to love our wives and our children. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that can't be contradictory. I don't think we're watering the word down. We're just saying, I think this is, I, I, I liked what Chris said. I think this is hyperbole, ex- exaggeration for emphasis. Yeah. Um, I'd be willing to, to go that route. But, and what Aaron's saying, though, and I think I would agree with this, is that you, May have to act as if you yeah, do hate them. I mean, well, you know, your your actions could be perceived as you hate them. The way that you, I mean, the sometimes way you, it's, uh, being true to the Lord, which is the most important thing, may. And I think Chris said this too. It's more being right with the Lord is more important than our earthly relationships. Okay, and it may drive a sword. Jesus said, "I came not to bring peace, but to, but a sword." Yeah, uh, and and he said those uh, his enemies may be of his own household. Yeah, uh, so it could be so. Yeah, I think we're we're we're. We're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. All right, quickly. Okay, uh, Tom said one note. The opposite of love is not hate. It's apathy. Hmm. I have to think about that one. Maybe, maybe. I'll have to think about that, too. Okay. All right, let's go to our next to last one. Okay, number seven. I think this one's pretty easy, too. 
Uh, what about Jesus' teaching concerning foot washing? Oh. Now, we don't have time to read. We're, out of, we're running out of time. We don't have time to read all of that, but you remember. Now don't let Monty's feet prejudice you against what Jesus hey, listen, is saying i got to find a way out of this because I do not want to touch <laughs> yeah. Monty's We've stinky feet. we got to feet. have a loophole. <laughs> you definitely don't want him in my shoes tonight. <laughs> uh, but you remember the story in John 13. Jesus uh, girded, put a towel around him and girded himself, and then he proceeded to wash his disciples' feet. And at the end of that episode, he said, uh, 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 well, let's see where we're going to start. Uh, so after verse 12, after he'd washed their feet and taken his garments, was set down, and he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Mm-hmm. Well, some people take that absolutely literally, and they, they, they practice a ceremonial foot washing in their religious services. Stephen has been to one. Stephen has been to one. And he says, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that would be my reaction to it, too. Uh, but, of course, first of all, we've got to understand this uh, culturally. In that day and time, it was very common, an act of hospitality, to wash a visitor's feet when he came to the house. Um, it was an act of humble service. Uh, in First Timothy chapter five verse ten, when Paul was listing the works of the widow, indeed, yes, he mentioned she hath washed the saints' feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time, when Jesus went to the house of Simon the Pharisee, he rebuked Simon because Simon had not provided him water to wash his feet. It was a common act of service, humble service, and hospitality. Uh, it was an act of service, and Jesus was just teaching here the idea that. Here he was, Lord and Master, but he was willing to serve them, and they ought to be willing to serve one another. He was not instituting the the ceremonial act of washing someone's feet. He was enacting. He was teaching the principle of humble service. Now that might involve washing someone's feet. Yes, but to limit it to that, I think is doing an injustice uh, to his teaching. Yeah, if, if someone needed an act of service, washing someone's feet, and some have done that, I have done that actually in the past, where it was called upon, where it was necessary, needed, but that's not. It was not in a religious service, and that's not what Jesus is teaching. Here's right. a, a ceremonial act. All right. Um, here's what Chris in the UK says. He was illustrating his teaching by acting as a servant. In this case, washing their feet, a task assigned only to a slave or sometimes done out of love, such as in a wife doing it for a husband or a child doing it for their parent. We should back up what we teach, believe, confess with action. In this case, as in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, we should esteem others better than ourselves, and so looking for how we can minister to each other. Also, he washed us with the work of the cross, and we can wash each other by the application of his word to each other's lives. Ephesians 2, verse 26. Thank you, Chris. One observation somebody made uh, was that Jesus washed all the disciples' feet. If one is going to bind this example precisely as a church ordinance then everyone present will have to have their feet washed and they will have to in turn turn around and wash everybody else's feet could take several hours if the group is of any size at all it's impractical but maybe a note from history this is from newman's manual of church history quote there's no indication in the new testament or in christian literature of the first three centuries that our lord was understood to have instituted an an ordinance of foot washing by the acts and words under consideration in John 13. Feet washing was a common and needed act of hospitality in Palestine at the time, and the teaching of Christ intended to convey 
the teaching that Christ intended to convey was the manifestation of the spirit of brotherly love in acts of humble service. The er, get this, this is notable. The earliest reference to the ceremonial use of foot washing is in the canon of the Synod of Elvira, dated A.D. 306, where it was condemned. Mm. So uh, why do we not read? If that was, if Jesus was instituted, why do not we read? We, we read about saints coming together in assembly. Mm-hmm. Why did we not read about them washing one another's feet? Yeah. They didn't do it. And the first reference to it in non-inspired church history is to condemn it. All right. And that was 300 years later. All right. Money. You know, when you think about it, if he was instituting some physical act of worship, he wouldn't have asked them, do you know what I've just done? They weren't stupid. They knew he'd just washed their feet. That part they knew about. Mm-hmm. So he was telling them that there was some higher meaning to what he did other than the physical act. Yes. All right. Uh, Aaron in Baton Rouge says people wonder why the Lord's Supper and foot washing both happen together, but the church practices only one of them. But if the only institution that I had about, or the only instruction I had about the Lord's Supper was in the accounts of its institution, I wouldn't conclude that it is for the church to observe. Those accounts don't tell us about who or when. We know what to do with the supper because we read later about what the church did. We read no such thing about foot washing, so I conclude that they are not the same. Exactly right, Aaron. We, why, why, why do we, we read about the Lord's Supper. Why don't we read about foot washing? We don't read about them ever doing it as a ceremonial act or as an act of worship. But I so go. you're saying we should be still washing feet. Yeah, I hope you Figuratively. do. Figuratively. Figuratively. In service. Serving, right. yeah. So Rip. we're not saying don't do what Jesus did. We're saying absolutely do what he did, but it may take a different mode. Exactly. All right. We've got to go quickly. Now, get this last one. we just got a couple of minutes here. What about Jesus going to preach to spirits in prison? This is in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, uh, Peter says, Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once in the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Some people use this passage to teach that during the three days that Jesus was, his body was in the grave, his spirit was in the Hadean world preaching to those who were there. And it, but it talks about those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. He went to Hades to preach to those who were condemned for their disobedience in the days of Noah. Why? Right. Why would he do that? I mean, there's the, you know, the, in the parable, or in the story, not parable, but in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, Abraham said there's a great gulf fixed between the righteous dead and the evil dead. And it can't be crossed. Yeah. Why would you go preach to them if there's nothing that, that their state can't be changed anyway? Yeah. And so uh, those who use that to teach this are just wrong. I think the passage is affirming that Jesus, in the Spirit, preached to those in the days of Noah. How did he do that? Mm-hmm. Well, he did that through Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, mm-hmm. 2 Peter 2, verse 5. Mm-hmm. And I think that answers it. It's not talking about what he did while he was dead. Uh, physically dead before his resurrection is talking about through the, by the spirit through noah the truth was proclaimed to those who were disobedient in noah's day uh, and they chose to reject it in noah's day and they were they were condemned and lost in the flood but noah through his obedience was saved and his family chris in the uk says to preach used here is to announce or herald or proclaim uh not a not the preaching of the gospel as used in uh First Peter chapter one verse twelve or chapter four verse six, 
We are not told what was told to these imprisoned spirits, but it was not a message of redemption. It was to offer... Uh, it was... I a, offer, declar- a declaration of victory over yeah. Satan and death. Yeah. I, I, I would disagree. I don't think that's what he's talking about, Chris. I don't think that he actually went and talked to those uh, condemned souls in Hades during the time of his uh, of his time in Hades. Uh, Jesus, we actually know where Jesus was during that time. He was in paradise. He told the thief on the cross, "This day thou shalt be with me in paradise." He was not in torment. He was in paradise, and uh, there wouldn't have been any reason for him to preach to the to the disobedient in torture in Hades. We are out of time. That's a tough one, but I, I think we got it. All right. Well, good discussion tonight and good feedback from our, our listeners. We're yeah, very happy we had, we had good participation. Great, great good participation in the chat room. Thanks for your help there. I, I just think it's really interesting to look at some of those statements and actions of Jesus. A little harder to deal with, but but I think we can figure it out. All right. Well, good discussion, Monty. Thank you for coming tonight, and thanks for well, you gave us some good good answers. You you were right. You had a lot of answers there, and you didn't take your shoes off. I didn't put them on either. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for coming, Monty. Thank you, Dad, for your discussion. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you for being a part of our program. We hope you benefited uh, benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.